All right, guys, keep your Bibles open there. And as we begin, I want to ask you to um, imagine with me for a minute. Close your eyes. Don't go to sleep. I'm watching. Close your eyes for a minute. And I want you to pretend that you're, you're, you're praying and um, all of a sudden Jesus shows up. Okay, and he, and he asks you, kind of like a genie, what do you want me to do for you? I want you to think about how would you answer. Jesus shows up and asks you, looks you right in the eye and says, what do you want me to do for you? How do you reply? I want you to be honest. Don't give the church answer. We're not going to have you cry it out. So I want you to have, I, I want you to let your heart be honest as you think about that. And I want you to keep that in mind as we uh, move into this passage today. As we continue our series on uh, our summer series called "The Questioning God," we're gonna, we, as we see in this passage, we're gonna come across Jesus, um, where he uh, encounters two different parties of people, and he's gonna end up asking them both this very question: "What do you want me to do for you?" We're going to see that each of those parties come in with that question with a different motive and a different heart behind it, and the answers will be um, different accordingly. But as we've kind of dove into this series, we realize that that God asks questions like a good counselor, like a good friend, uh, to expose something in our heart, to really dive deep into uh, important truths. And so uh, today, as he asked this seemingly um, like a dream question, right? Like, for many of you, it's probably hard to come to one thing, right? It's probably hard to think of, like, what, what, would, I, what would I ask God to do for me? Like, it, it, maybe it was hard for you to kind of wrap that up into a single sentence, but that is exactly um, what happens in these two different scenarios. So we're going to walk through these. I want you to keep in mind that, that Mark has put these together, uh, not coincidentally. Uh, these are the only two times where, where we see this question asked. By Jesus, and he's put these stories together on purpose. So the context of what's going on here is that Jesus is is really in that breaking point in his ministry where he's done a lot of miracles. He's got a lot of momentum. He's got a lot of followers. He's done. He's uh, freed people from demon possession. He's healed the sick. He's even raised the dead, and he's done all of those things. And he's got a lot of buzz around him everywhere he goes. And so, but what happens is we're going to see the tone shift as we did when we were in Luke. And, and Jesus is going to start talking about how he's going to die. So most people think that, that Jesus is headed toward a earthly throne to come up, you know, and be the Messiah, that they think he's going to be a political leader. And Jesus starts to change the narrative and say, actually, I'm going to suffer. Be turned over to the religious leaders and I'm going to suffer and die. And what we've seen is that that begins in chapter 8 of Mark. And Jesus is going to say that three different times with increasing detail. And what we see is that um, consistently the disciples don't get it. Okay, We're going to see that when Jesus says, hey, this is where my life is headed. Actually, I'm not here to kind of take a throne. I'm here to give my life away. And I'm going to actually suffer and die. They don't get it. And they consistently are met with confusion, misunderstanding, or outright just like, hey, Jesus, that doesn't sound like a good plan at all. Why don't we do something different? And Jesus will rebuke them. So that's the context of what's happening. This is after the third time that Jesus has uh, foretold his death on the cross. Just a good reminder that Jesus' life was not taken from him. Okay, Jesus was not a martyr. 
Jesus himself gave his life. He knew where he was headed, and he, uh, he, he predicted it several times, saying that this is how my life is going to end, and with good reason. This is the very purpose, in fact. And so uh, that's what preceded this um, interaction here, and we pick it back up. We're going to walk through um, these verses here in Mark 10. So keep your Bible open there. We're going to walk through, starting in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, or the sons of thunder, these are the same guys that wanted to call down thunder and roast a bunch of dudes, right, because they didn't welcome Jesus. They're like, hey, you want us to call down thunder? Like, you want us to call down lightning and just burn all these dudes up? Jesus is like, no, man, I, I, got, it. I got a different plan. And so these guys, are, they're, they're very eager. They're very bold in, in their personality. They came up to Jesus, and they say, hey, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And there's some, uh, I, I hope that that question kind of gives you some pause, right? Because we know who Jesus, like, we know we're like, ooh, maybe, man, like, you might, like your kids, like, hey, you might need to watch your tone, right? Like, that's probably not the best way to approach the Messiah. Uh, but but we, so we see some entitlement there. We see some, some heart indicators right there in just the way that they start their request. So, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's incredible that Jesus, in his kindness, responds with patience and, and love as he says, hey, he says, what do, you, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, hey, grant us when, when, to, to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So what they're thinking is, Jesus, all they've really heard out of Jesus' death announcements is, hey, going to Jerusalem. Okay, and it's going to be a conflict, and it's going to, but they don't understand what that means. Jesus speaks in parables a lot, and they're like, okay, he keeps talking about dying. That probably means something different, so I don't know, but this is going to be awesome. He's going to come in and take over, overthrow Rome, and, and, and so they're like, hey, we need to get in on the inner, like, we're the inner circle, and so I want to call dibs on the, the first seat. So in that, that time, like the, the seats, any ruler, really, um, whoever sits on the right hand and the left, those are prestigious, powerful seats, right? So what they're asking is, hey, whenever you take your throne, whenever you come into your glory, like we want to be, we want to get first dibs on the top cabinet positions, right? Like I want to, he wants to be your chief of staff and I'm going to be your prime minister or whatever. Like we want to get in on those things. And so that's what they're asking. Jesus, again, patiently says, guys, you don't know what you're asking. Again, he's told them he's headed to the cross. They don't get it. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they say, we're able. And Jesus goes on to explain a little bit further. What Jesus is saying is, hey, you have no idea what you're asking because in my glory in Jerusalem where I'm headed, there will be a place on my right and on my left. But I don't think you're going to like it. Because Jesus knows that the very point of his, uh, the, the climax of his glory is going to be displayed whenever he gives his own life on a sinner's cross. And there will be somebody displayed on his right and on his left, but there'll be criminals that are being crucified along with him. And so he says to these guys, hey, I I don't think you know what you're asking, fellas. You think that you can attach yourself to me and it's going to lead to some kind of self-promotion and you're going to get your own glory. You need to understand. You need to listen to what I have said. This ends with me suffering and dying. And you need to be careful that you're asking to go with me and to be a part of that because you don't know what you're asking. It goes on to explain to him. He says, that, listen, the cup that I drink, the cup in the, in the Old Testament, and really Jesus uses a lot, is, is um, symbolic of really the wrath of God or, or something that you're going to have to take in or endure. And so the cup that he drinks, Jesus says, he says, you will drink it. 
And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Uh, in this context, like we know baptism as in, you know, the large coffin thing of water that we bring out here and dunk people in. Like in this, this time, it, it's really just talking about an immersive suffering, an immersive, all-consuming experience. And so what Jesus is saying is like, yeah, um, what I'm headed to, the cup I'm going to drink, the baptism with which I'm going to receive, like you're going to get, you're going to get that, but not in the way that you think it is. So what Jesus is saying is like, listen, <clears throat> many of the early church thought that this was um, really foretelling their own martyrdom, which very well could be. Because we know that what Jesus is saying is like, hey, you're, you're going to follow me and I'm going to use you as a part of what, what, what sends forth the early church. And we know that most of the disciples did indeed end up losing their life as martyrs. And so Jesus is saying, like, yeah, you're going you're gonna to end up there, but it, not in the way that you think. You're going to endure the same kind of suffering that I've gone to, but not, it's not going to be the glory that you're expecting. But Jesus says, but to sit at my right hand, verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who, for whom it has been prepared. I want you to just hear that. Jesus is all-powerful. He is the creator of all things. By him, all things were made. By him, all things hold together. And yet he is in submission to the Father. Did you catch that? He's saying, listen, instead of my right and my left, that's actually not mine to, to, to give. And so what we see is this, this beautiful picture. As we know, we're made in Jesus' image, and we're going to get to that later. But Jesus himself is submissive to his Father's authority. And we need to make note of that, that he, as we talk about marriage and submitting in marriage, we talk about, to our kids about submitting to authority, we need to understand that that's not an oppressive thing, that that's actually a life-giving thing when we're talking about it in the context of what the Bible sets up for us. And so Jesus defers to God. He says, I, it's not mine to grant, but it's for those who, for whom it has been prepared. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, you might start to think that they're angry at their foolishness, right? But what we're going to see is Jesus has to call them all together, and so they're really just mad that they thought of it first. Right In my mind, it's like when you're walking out of the car and you're in high school and somebody calls shotgun, everybody else is frustrated. Like These guys are just mad that they didn't think of it. Okay? So they're all indignant. They start coming at James and John. Oh, come on. We, you know, whatever it is. And so it, whatever the conversation is, Jesus pulls them to the side, calls them to him, kind of huddles them up. Verse 42. He says, listen, guys, you, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. He says, listen, look around. You know those that are in positions of authority, they lord it over their people, and they abuse it, and, and they're proud of their position, and they, they let that become their identity. Just has them look around, and he says, listen, it's not going to be so among you. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. Jesus keep in mind, is creating a new people for himself. God has, has made for himself the people of Israel. They have broken their covenant. They've made a mess of their life, and Jesus is coming to renew that. He's coming to make for himself a new people, a new Israel. And he's saying, in my church, in my people, the children of God, the kingdom of God, it's not going to be like it is in the world. It won't be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be what? Your servant. Verse 44, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want you to think about that. Jesus is saying, even the Son of Man came not to be served. 
How often do you find a leader like that, that, that defers and says, no, no, I'm not here to serve you. Or, I'm not here to be served. I'm not here to get all the glory. I'm here to actually lay my life down and to serve others. Jesus is setting himself apart as, as different than any other leader of any other world religion. They all came to live and to set up an example for their leaders to follow, and then they die, and they're held up as that example, and, and they go forward. But Jesus came to die to be a sacrifice. And he is certainly an example, don't get me wrong, but he, he came primarily to die and to be a sacrifice rather than to live to be an example. He is not going to hold up this, this model life for us to, to see if we can run to it to see if we can achieve it, to see if we can be good enough, to see if we can put enough good in the scale to outweigh the bad. That is not, he's not showing us the way to uh, enlightenment, showing us the way to achieve enough good. That, that's not Jesus's mission. He, goes, he says, I've come to actually lay my life down. And my full intention as the ruler of the world is to lay my life down as a sacrifice. I'm not come to be served. I'm not looking to get a throne and to get rulers and to get for people to come and, and be my... He says, no, no, I had all that. And I left it. Jesus says, I, 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 I considered all that not worth to be grasped or to hold on to. And he, and he stepped out of heaven and out of, off of his throne and into our mess. And he says, I've come to be the sacrifice that is required for your mess. The word there, Jesus says, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word for in the Greek means uh, instead of, or a substitute, in substitution for. So when he says, to give my life as a ransom for many, that's instead of. Those that should belong there, Jesus is going to move them out of the way and put himself there instead. And the word ransom means to, to buy the freedom of a prisoner or a slave. Somebody that, that is in bondage and they're Master, whoever has them, is not going to let them go because they have rights to them. And so somebody is going to come in and make a huge sacrificial payment that is equal to the value of that slave or that person in order to rescue them, in order to pardon them, to get them back, to buy their freedom. Jesus says, I've come to give my life for ransom for many instead of in substitution for and in ransom to buy back those who are in slavery. What Jesus is saying is like, guys, you think you're going to ride my coattails into your own self-promotion, your own self-glory. You think that by following me, it's going to end up getting this for you or that for you. You need to understand that I plan to give it all away. I plan to surrender my life in complete sacrifice. And what they don't understand is that it's actually better. What Jesus is offering is not a letdown from what they had in mind, but it's actually a, a step up. A great, it's something far greater than they could ever imagine. But they're not real good at comprehending that, as we've seen. He's already told them three times. They're still not getting it. And so what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to uh, intentionally have another encounter that's going to help them understand this. And there's irony in this because we're going to see that the blind man is actually going to be the one who sees Jesus for who he really is. And it's going to be held up as a surprising example for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So let, let's, let's continue on into this next story. 
And what we're going to see is it's somewhat random, but then if you look at the two questions, it's clearly tied together. And then if you zoom out and you look at the whole story, you realize that Jesus, this whole few days of interaction where Jesus has started foretelling his, his death and he's headed to Jerusalem, it all began with Jesus healing a blind man. And then he foretells his death, and then and he explains some things, and he does some more miracles, then he foretells his death again, and then it's going to end and close out with Jesus healing yet another blind man. And so we're going to dive into the story and let uh, Jesus take us even deeper into our own hearts through uh, these brilliant questions. So verse 46, and they came to Jericho as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, you see what they did there? See the names? you're struggling for a kid name, just take yours, throw a bar in front of it, you're done. Not even difficult, right? So they see Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sitting by the roadside. He's a blind beggar. Verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So this is a blind man, and yet he has heard. Again, you've got to think. There's not news coverage and those types of things, but man, word travels fast. And so people have been buzzing about for, for around three years now, Jesus has been doing ministry and he's been healing the sick, uh, raising the dead, and his reputation very much precedes him. And so there's a throng of people following him. There's a buzz about it. And this man goes out to sit in his normal spot to be a beggar like he does every day because he's blind. He can't provide for himself. So he heads to that normal spot and he could tell that something is different today. You can tell that there's a, there's a buzz, there's a, there's a happening that isn't usual. And as he starts to listen, and I can't fathom this, but if you, can, uh, if you know anybody that has suffered from blindness or really any kind of sensory loss, we know that the other, sensory, the other senses are heightened, right? So we know that this guy relies a lot on his hearing to know what's going on. And so he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is on his way, that he's going to be walking by. And so immediately, what does he do? When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And you've got to get into this social tension here. There's a, there's a throng of people following him. These are beggars. These are the outcasts of society. These are the people that we see on the side of the road with the signs regularly that we've gotten so numb to. We either, this is, you try not to make eye contact, right? Right? Because then if you do, you don't know, I, I, I don't have any cash. I just got, doesn't take debit. I don't know what to do. You got any food? Like, I, you know, there's that tension of like, I don't know what to do in that, in that scenario. And these are those people in the day. And, and so as this guy starts crying out, again, you got to remember culturally, not only are the religious, they're, they're considered the clean and anybody who's sick or suffering, like they're unclean and they're not even supposed to be talking to them. But Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher of the law. And so he's really uh, been given prestige by the people, even though he has re- rejected it and really uh, come after it in a lot of ways. But, but people are, are used to, certainly this man shouldn't be uh, coming near Jesus, talking to Jesus. And so he starts to make a scene and cry out for Jesus to have mercy upon me. And we see that people rebuke him. People start stopping him. Hey, shh, shh man, like... This is not your deal, buddy. Like, Jesus has better things to do. You need to be quiet. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Verse 48. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. Jesus, once again, I heard one pastor say that Jesus doesn't just come for the marginalized. Jesus moves the margins. When, all, when, when the crowd is saying, hey, shh, shh, buddy, this is not for you. Jesus got better things to do. Jesus stops and says, hey, get that guy over here. 
Call him. Bring him over here. Jesus stops everybody in their tracks. They're all watching now. They don't know what he's going to do. Uh, and Jesus begins to engage with this man. They called him, verse 49, saying to him, Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? Seems like a dumb question, right? Jesus looks at the blind man says, Hey, what do you need? What's up, buddy? What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi. We know that that word, Rabbi, there is a richer word that is used only really in prayer. It means master, teacher. It's usually attributed to God. And he says, he says Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately the man recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So I want you to look at this real quick. Jesus asked this seemingly dense question from this blind man. What do you want me to do for you? He's asked this of sick people before. Hey, do you want to be healed? And it's interesting because what we find is uh, uh, the guy could have asked for just money, right? Like that's what he does every day. Like he's just begging for money. And so he could have just said, hey, I know you're, you know, you got it going on. You're kind of a celebrity. Like I could just use some extra cash. But this man has the gall to ask for the very greatest need in his life, which he's acutely aware of. And he says, hey, let me recover my sight. And it's interesting, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And if you're honest, you kind of look at that situation and go, okay, really, what faith did this guy have? But if you look back, this guy called out and claimed, he said, Jesus, son of David. In this, like, we're kind of used to that, and it's like, okay, that's some kind of Old Testament reference. But for this guy to say that, like, he's acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. The Jewish people have known that way back from the time of Samuel, like, that, that God promised that he would send Someone through the line of David that would be the Messiah that would reign forever. That he set him apart as that. And so this, might, this guy, by calling out, now most people thought he was going to come with a, with a warhead and, and ready to like take over politically. But what we see is this guy recognizes that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And by claiming him as that, by calling out and saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What Jesus wants us to see is that this guy gets it. This guy gets what the disciples have failed and failed and failed to see. This guy, the blind man, is the only one that sees clearly who Jesus is. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Go. He doesn't say go, but the man follows him. We see that this man goes from being one on the side of the road to one being on the road following Jesus. That there's beautiful redemption here. But I think what Jesus wants us to see is, again, that, that this blind man actually becomes a model for us of what it means to be a disciple. And here's just a few reasons why. First of all, this guy is acutely aware of his need. He's acutely aware of what is wrong in his life and his need, and he knows that he's blind. And he crawled. This is why Jesus says, like, the, the good news is coming to those who are poor, those who are needy, those who are oppressed, because they, and it's not to say that the gospel is only for those who don't have any money. What Jesus has said, and we've seen over and over again in Luke, is that the gospel is good news to those that, who know that they need good news. Those who know that they are suffering, that they don't have hope, that they're broken, and their lives need repaired, that their hearts need repaired, 
Jesus is coming to bring good news. For those who think that their life is mostly okay, that they're pretty able, competent, and got it figured out, Jesus is saying, it's not going to be good news to you at all. You're not going to get it. This guy is acutely aware of his need, and he cries out, Jesus, have mercy upon me. The second thing is we see that he persists in prayer the way that Jesus had taught. You remember some of those teachings that Jesus shows us how to teach, and he talks about like going to your neighbor's house in the middle of the night, and you're going to keep knocking, keep asking, keep knocking, keep asking, right? And the persistence, and they're kind of weird teachings. Like this guy persists in asking Jesus for help the way that Jesus has taught us to pray. Like this guy models it. He doesn't care that people are telling him to shut up. He doesn't care that that he's not supposed to be in this circle. He is pursuing Jesus. He's praying the way that Jesus had taught. And then he recognized Jesus as the Messiah, as we've already mentioned. But here's the real thing. Here's the real reason that this guy is the model for what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to respond to Jesus. It's what he asked for. It's what he asked for. See, if we're honest, I think most of us are more like the disciples than we are like this blind man. Most of us in the culture we've grown up in, and church is a pretty normal thing, like we're used to having life be mostly figured out for us. Right? And occasionally we run across the bumps, occasionally we run across the hiccup, something we can't control, whether that be sickness, whether that be loss of a job or a family member or whatever it may be, and then we're kind of driven to be reminded of our need. Right? And so then we'll come to God. But most of us are used to having a level of competence. And so and, and we, we, we kind of know what we need to do to figure life out. And so so many of us come into our faith thinking that, that this is kind of a supplemental deal. That we'll invite Jesus, that we'll do, do things for Jesus to kind of get him in our favor. Did you hear that from the disciples early on? He says, hey, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Like, where does that come from? Well, if you kind of rewind, you realize these guys are some of the first that have been called, and they've been with Jesus for three years. They're, they're, they're beginning to get a sense of entitlement, like, hey, we've been with you. We've not betrayed you. We've given up everything for you. We have a sense, like, they had a sense of entitlement, and I think a lot of us come into our own faith that way, and we think, okay, I'm going to do things to put God in my debt so that when I need him, I can call him and ask him to fix this problem or to do this thing, Right? Think back to that question we asked earlier. What if Jesus asked you, what, can I, what do you want me to do for you? What was, what was your answer? What, what were you longing for? What, what did you bring before Jesus? And I want you to look at the difference between what the, the disciples asked for in that moment, really self-promotion, glory, status really is what they're after, right? Isn't that an exhausting game? Chasing after status? Hasn't Facebook just sucked the life out of our souls? Instagram? Because everybody's able to kind of package their life into these cute little bubbles, and everybody thinks, oh, man, their life's going really well, right? Or, oh, I wish I, like, I need to keep up with this person. And, like, it's just the keeping up with the Joneses thing has just been like gasoline's just been thrown on that fire in the day of social media. And there's all kinds of studies that are outside of the Christian faith that are like, hey, this is having some really concerning effects on depression, suicide, those things, because listen, we all want status and we're, we're chasing after that. That's a reality. And that's what the disciples are longing for. And that's what they're asking Jesus for. And if we're honest, like that's kind of what we're all after. Like, yeah, we'll do the God thing because we know we can't handle our eternity. So we'll, we'll come to church. We'll kind of pay the, pay that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll pay the payment on our life insurance policy or whatever it may be so that we can have whatever we need. And then we can put God in our debt by, you know, serving 
showing up, being faithful, reading our Bible or whatever, and then we'll ask God for, for things whenever we need it, and, and we'll be indignant or be angry whenever he doesn't do what we've asked him to do. So if we're honest, a lot of us fall more there, but I want you to look at the posture and the need of the blind man. He doesn't ask to be superhuman. He doesn't ask to have incredible glory. He just asks to be made whole. He just asks to be made human, ordinary. And what we're going to see is that blindness for Jesus is really a symbol. Physical blindness is really a symbol for a, a heart condition, a spiritual issue that is, is haunting Everyone. When Jesus comes, and in, in Luke 4 specifically, he says, like, I've come to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the captive, and to, re- and to give recovery of sight for the blind. Like, Jesus heals a lot of blind people. And that's not because, like, they're not just throwaway things. Like, healing of blindness is something that we will see fully culminated. When Jesus comes back and, and heaven is on earth and his kingdom is fully culminated, like, we won't know a blind person. All of that will be eradicated and people will be made completely whole. But the reason that Jesus heals so many blind people in the Gospels is because it's supposed to teach us something about our own human condition and the greater blindness that has settled onto all of us. What Jesus wants us to see is that we are all just as desperate We are all just as blind as this man. But what happens is we get pretty comfortable with okay, right? We get pretty comfortable with like our life is mostly put together. And so we don't have this desperation anymore. What Jesus wants us to see is that we should never leave that posture, that we should continually ask Jesus to make us whole. And and, and here's like, this gets all the way back to the very beginning of the issue in Genesis 3. If you rewind all the way back to whenever things really went wrong, in Genesis 3, what was the lie that was perpetrated? See, God makes this beautiful creation. He makes these beautiful people in his own image, and he he gives them a world of yeses, right? He says, you go and you be fruitful and multiply and cultivate the garden and enjoy what I've made, but he gives them one no. What's the lie that makes all of this go badly? The serpent comes in. And he whispers. And he says, hey, hey, did God really tell you not to eat of that tree? Here's what he really says. Did God really tell you you can't eat of any of the trees? I'm like, no, just, just not that one. And the serpent goes, oh, yeah, yeah, because if you eat that one, God knows you'll be like him. You'll know good and evil. What happens in that moment? Their hearts leap for their own glory, Right? Our first parents throw it all away because their hearts leap for and attach themselves to their own glory. What are they chasing in that moment? Status, right? Like they're after their own status and glory. Like the lie is that God is holding out on you. And if you really want joy, you really want fulfillment, you need to go do that thing. And it's called the lie because it's that. It's a lie. And it is settled over Humankind ever since. But we were all born into that same sin, chasing something other than life. So what Jesus is saying is, Satan's done a pretty good job of blinding the world to their need for God. They're chasing our need, going to other things. But Jesus is saying, I've, I've come not to just 
meet your need that's right in front of you. I'm coming after a larger need, and I'm coming, I'm coming to give recovery of sight to the blind. Flip back toward the front of your Bible, if you would, to Matthew chapter 23. It should be just a few pages to your left. Jesus is going to show us who's really blind. There's an English novelist named Samuel Butler that says, A blind man knows that he can't see, and so therefore he's glad to be led, though it may be by a dog. But he that is blind in his understanding, which is the worst blindness of all, believes that he sees as the best, and he scorns a guide. saying is a blind man is well aware of his need and is glad to be led by anybody who can help him get where he needs to go. But somebody who doesn't understand their blind, they're blind in understanding, which is far worse than physical blindness, he said, they're going to think that they see better than anybody else. And therefore, they're going to scorn a guide. And Jesus is going to come at the religious people of his day and really explain why he kept saying that the, the, the kingdom is for the poor, the brokenhearted, the downtrodden, because here's why the religious people are missing it. This whole passage is an incredible indictment, and we won't read it all, but I want you to hear the, the, the repeated theme over and over again as Jesus breaks down this same teaching that whoever's going to be called to be great among you is going to be your servant. Right, So Jesus is saying, don't be striving to get ahead. Don't be striving to get on top. Like Anybody who is gaining any influence in, inside Jesus' kingdom, inside the church, should be the number one servant. Like You're gaining influence by giving your life away. You're, you're gaining prestige by being the one who serves most of all, and you're not even enjoying it. Like you're going back and giving up and opening your hands more and more and more. And so in the midst of this teaching, then he, he shifts in, and he says, woe to you, verse 13 of Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. These are the religious people. He says, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven, and people faces, and you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would go to enter in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Says so you'll travel across land and sea to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you'll make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. On and on. You, you tithe from the mint and the dill and the cumin, and yet you've neglected the, neglected the weight of your matters of the law. He says, you're so worried about filling the law and make sure you're doing more to be religious than anybody else that you're, you're tithing out of your spice rack, and yet you're missing to do justice and mercy and worship, uh, which is the bigger commands, the ones that really matter. In verse 24, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You're missing it. You're worried about a gnat. Meanwhile, you're digesting a camel. Woe to you. He's going to keep saying, verse 20, woe to you, you blind Pharisee. Verse 26, 
Here's what he says. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. He says, you, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. And so, man, how familiar is that? Like, we want to look good on the outside, but inside Jesus is saying it's rotten with greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you, this is, like, he said this a lot, like, this is building tension. And he says, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He's going to continue and call them out for being a people that are worried about appearance, worried about status, worried about power, worried about influence. Meanwhile, their hearts are rotten with sin and greed. Here's the deal. The blindness that lays over all of us is that we think what will bring us life is self-exaltation. Getting what we want, whether that be comfort, power, influence, whatever it may be. And that all started from Genesis 3 when the enemy redirected our eyes and says, that's what you really want. That's what you really need. Jesus says, I've come to do away with all that. And the gospel won't be anything like that. In our church, we shouldn't be people that are lording over our power and our influence over other people. We should, the, the people who have power and influence are the ones that are giving their life away, giving their life away, and giving their life away. Jesus says, it's not going to be anything like that. In fact, it's going to be completely different. He says, look at me. I'm the one you're following, and I'm not here to be served. I'm here to give my life away. And then what he does is he turns around and honors the blind man who just asked to be made whole. Here's the deal. What we need is to be made whole. What we need is to be made fully human again. We need to understand that we are blind. Even if we can see with our physical eyes that our biggest issue that we have in our life, I don't care if you're struggling with pornography. I don't care if you're struggling with alcoholism. If you're struggling with fill in the blank, greed, power, lust, whatever. Like the, the issue that is blanketed your heart that is leading to those other issues is that you don't see God for who he really is. And when you don't see God for who he is as the source of life, the one true hope, the one that we should run to as the fountain of life, then everything else that you do is going to be futile and broken, hevel, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. It's just vanity. It seems like it's like chasing smoke. You, you think you can put your hands on it, but then it just grips right through. Like Jesus saying, I've come to rescue from that. And what you need is not glory and self-promotion. What you need is to be restored into the image of God. If you look back to when it was good in Genesis 1 and 2, like we were made in God's image. Satan tries to spin that whole thing and says, well, if you eat that, you'll be like God. And he says, no, 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 I'm already like God. Like God made me in his image. That's going to destroy this thing. That's going to mar the image of God in my life. And so what Jesus is saying here is that when, when he approaches us, in kindness and in grace and says, what do you want me to do for you? We should, like the blind man, cry out and say, son, son of man, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I am hopeless, and I need you to make me whole. So when you think back to that question, if Jesus actually shows up and does that, what are you asking him for? Is it for self-gain, promotion, uh, status, comfort, whatever it may be? Or are you asking to be made 
like Jesus. You see the theme throughout the entire Bible. Like from Old Testament on, Jesus says, like I'm, God says, I'm trying to make my people holy like I am holy because that's where they find life. That's where they're truly what they were made to be. What, that, that, that's something else that everybody talks about. Like there's got to be something more to life. I'm just missing something. What are you missing? Well, you're missing being made in the image of God. And that's where you find true hope and fulfillment. And that doesn't look like gaining all of this influence. It actually looks like gaining an identity that, that lets your soul rest and then allows you to give your life away. So what Jesus is saying is you need to have the posture of the blind man and cry out and say, Lord, make me whole. That means that instead of asking for our comfort or self-gain or whatever, we should be asking for our sin to be taken away. We need to understand that we are not good. We are not complete until Jesus comes back and makes us all, like gets rid of the sin in our life. Like we need, like the will of God, Micah, one of our elders, spoke, spoke to the, the students back in the, in the winter and says, like, you know, you, you, everybody's trying to figure out the will of God for your life. You don't know what God wants you to do. Like, it's really clear. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, like, the will of God is your sanctification. Romans 8, 29, like, what God rescued us for is to be conformed into the image of Christ. Like, the will of God is not to prosper you and get you all the wealth. Like, that's not what we read in the Bible. The will of God is your sanctification, which is meaning you made into the image of Christ. So when we see Jesus for who he is and he's exalted into that position of status, like we will instantly be aware of our own sin, our own need, our own brokenness. And we will cry out not for Jesus to get our wish list, but instead for him to make us whole, for him to make us well, make us complete. The Bible is really clear. The way that we change, the way that we get over sin and move toward holiness is by worship. It's by beholding Jesus for who he is. It's not, for, it's not by looking at the list and seeing what I've got to try harder, what I've got to do better at. It's, it, it, he says, throw out your list and look at Jesus. Throw out your list and open your Bible. Throw out your list and worship, whether that be in song or whatever, whatever stirs your hearts for Jesus. Like That's what you do, and that will lead to change. That's why we sing, guys. That's why we sing on the other side of our sermon, because we want you to have a chance to exalt the name of Jesus so that that leads to change. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says that we are all now with unveiled face. What Jesus did by giving his life away was, and, and a ransom for us was purchasing us back out of the, the slavery of sin and allowing us to now behold with unveiled face the glory of Jesus. And he says, as you do that, you're transferred, you're trans, you're changed from one degree of glory to another. Transformed was the word I was trying to say there. You're transformed from one degree of glory to another. I want you to go back to your time of prayer with the Lord and be honest. He asks you, what do you want me to do for you? Go ahead and close your eyes again. As we respond, as we always do here at the church, the altar's going to be open. We're going to receive communion. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to answer that question from Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Our answer should be, Jesus, make me like you. Forgive me where I've failed you. Forgive me where I've let you down and make me like you. So instead of saying, man, I, I could really use to get just out of this debt or do get, get this position or really for this relationship to be fixed or whatever, Jesus says, no, 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 those are all peripheral things. What you need is to let me sanctify you. And sometimes those things are in your life to lead you to sanctification. 
You ever encountered somebody that got sick, got a terrible diagnosis, whatever, and they, they had to suffer through that, and they come out saying, man, I learned way more about God than I ever did in any other season of my life. It's because God got their eyes off themselves and onto him. So that should be our prayer, our response is, the Lord, make me like you. So, so don't, don't walk away. Like If you've got an addiction in your life and you know that it's destroying your, your soul and eating away at your heart and nobody knows, if you've got secrets that are pulling you away from the truth and keep, that are a barrier between you and God, if you've got um, secrets from your spouse, if you've got secrets from your church, if you've got things that are in your life that... that that are not supposed to be there, that are causing you to be blind, like confess them. James says we confess to one another so that we could be healed. Like run to Jesus. We should have the posture of the blind man and running to Jesus. The, the aisle should be full of people just saying, Jesus, have mercy on me and make me whole. So don't, don't move on to asking about relationships or this or that whenever you've got a, a, a sin issue in your life that has dominion over you. You need to confess that. Allow him to remove the blindness. Close with this from Ephesians chapter 1. This is Paul's heart for the Ephesian church. He says this. Keep praying for you in verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and a knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, removing the blindness, church, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of, of the, his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul's saying, my biggest prayer, my biggest hope for you is that God would remove the scales from your eyes, that he would enlighten your heart, open the eyes of your heart, as the old song used to say, and that you may see the riches to which he has called you, and that will lead to change. That will lead you to let go of the sin and the unrighteousness in your life. That's my prayer during this time of response. Let's pray. God, do just that. May your spirit come and enlighten our hearts. May Jesus be made big, and may we respond accordingly. May we respond with crying out, Lord, make me whole. Forgive me of my sin. Make me like you, Jesus. Do your work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.